Hello, everyone. Welcome to the final episode of 2020 of Exploring Minds with Bobby Mack. The object of this show is to speak to other philosophically minded people in an unassuming way as we tackle some of life's biggest questions. And to end 2020, we are speaking with uh, Professor Francesca Minerva, who is a research fellow at the University of Warwick. She's a co-founder of an upcoming philosophy journal, the Journal of Controversial Ideas. Uh, her research focuses on lookism, conscientious objection, abortion, academic freedom, and cryonics. So if there was ever a person who was a uh, worthy founder of a journal of controversial ideas, it would be uh, Professor Minerva. It's good to have you with us today. Hi, thank you. Uh, just to think, I'm not a professor, so I don't want to. Uh, oh. I'm just a doctor, so. <laughs> doctor, doctor, Minerva. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, please call me Francesca. <laughs> oh, okay, I appreciate that. So, uh, Francesca, how did you first get interested in philosophy? Um. Yeah, that's funny. Um, I was. Um, around five, six, and uh, had this friend of my parents who I really liked, I thought it was really funny and interesting. And I asked my dad what was his job. He's like, oh, he's a philosopher. And it was a philosophy teacher. He had a degree in philosophy, even though he eventually uh, became a psychoanalyst. And I was like, oh yeah, what was his philosophy? And I was like, yeah, and I was asking questions and uh, um, things like that. So when I, be, when I turned seven, I decided I wanted to be a philosopher as well. Uh, after like, and then I started reading a bit of philosophy. Didn't understand really much at seven, eight, but I just wanted to imitate this guy who eventually was not even a philosopher, uh, changes uh, his job. But that's how I got into philosophy. <laughs> so I haven't really changed my mind since I was seven. So I've been... <laughs> Quite that actually would be a really interesting conversation about how to get seven year more seven year olds interested in philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is something that um, would be really good, like to get children because children are in a way like naturally philosophers. They have a lot of questions. They, they think out of the box, like there is nothing to them that is, um, you know, they don't know how the world works. Um, so everything is new and they can approach things from this unbiased perspective. And as they grow, they, they lose that. Um, so I think that we should start teaching philosophy uh, to children, like from primary school or even earlier on, just help them to cultivate this attitude at questioning things, um, at looking at things from different perspectives. Um, I think it's something that would that would really make a difference because people usually start you studying philosophy, at least in Italy where I studied. In some kind of schools, uh, we started 14, so I started 14, but for other people, it's just like university. And I think at that point, your worldviews are already formed and you're not as open to changing your mind about things. But just I think that philosophical attitudes and not taking anything for granted um, should start from very early age. Mm. Yeah, and I think children are much better at reasoning about things than people give them credit for. Like, often people don't even try and engage with children, but, like, they're they're not bad. I mean, they're still seven, but I, I think they're, like, I think most people don't think that those capacities develop until 14, but I, I think that's just clearly not true, so. Yeah, yeah no, I agree. I think that, uh, I mean, I don't really hang out with many children. Um, <laughs> I don't have children myself, at least yet. Um, but 
I mean, I remember like how it was to be a child that age and that the curiosity and have you know, some younger cousins. Um, and it, it's interesting, like how their way of thinking um, is, is different from adults. Um, I think it's fascinating and in a way philosophers kind of have to do the same thing, just like start from something that it seems like very obvious and then um, unpack it in a way that, you know, all the people like, uh, you can look at it in a way that it's not really that obvious anymore. Like, why do we have this belief? Um, and I like to think about doing philosophy as, in a sense, like being an, an alien that comes to the plants, like, oh, why, why do these people do this? Like, why is this, you know what, everybody seems to believe that this is the best way to approach this issue. Um, and I think, for instance, it's, I find it really puzzling that there is no, no question about um, bringing people into existence. Like, it's something that everybody can do any moment. There is no regulations. Like, yes, absolutely. But, you know, that's a huge responsibility. Like you're bringing someone in the world and, you know, you don't know how their life is going to be. And, you know, maybe they're not born in the best circumstances and so on and so forth. But then when it comes to ending your own life, which is, this, which is something that you do as a mature age very often, and it only has to do with yourself. It's a decision that mostly affects yourself. Uh, that becomes impossible pretty much everywhere in the world. And, and I think that, you know, aliens would be puzzled by this um, difference, the way we approach bringing to existence and taking out of existence um, people. Yeah, yeah, I, that's, uh, I could give my cynical reasons as to why I think that's the case. But uh, what you're talking about there is, uh, has these sort of, the, the childlike curiosity that you're talking about is exactly the kind of spirit of somebody who would come up with something like a journal of controversial ideas. That, <laughs> that, that speaks to me with the kind of curiosity that I wanna hear those arguments that um, people have sort of had either beaten out of them or shushed up. Um, yeah. So what is, what do, you, what do you plan on accomplishing with the journal of controversial ideas? Um, yes, it is pretty much what you were mentioning. So I realized um, a few years ago that people were becoming increasingly scared of sharing their ideas, some of their ideas, um, for good reasons. Because the, I wouldn't say for good reasons, but I understandably, um, because, you know, there have been petitions and attempts and with some success at firing people for um, articles they published or claims they've made. So I started thinking, well, we're losing potentially very interesting ideas that will not be discussed and I won't hear about because people will be too scared of talking about it. And I think these ideas are among the most interesting like because you want to see these ideas you want to hear these ideas that are like really out of the box and different and challenge the status quo um and i think that it's often very useful to uh, compare the status quo um with different approaches to to the same problem like new views um, because at least you can, you know, you can, maybe the status quo view is right. M most of the cases it is right. 
but you can, if by, by challenging it, you can be more sure um, that it is the right approach to a certain issue. But if you never challenge it and you just take it for granted, oh, we do things like this, this is what we believe, um, then you know, you're not sure that you're dealing with just <laughs> an opinion that, be that has become common or with the truth. And since the point of philosophy is to find the truth or getting closer to the truth, I thought that it was it was like really risky how we were getting far uh, from the truth instead of closer. So I thought, well, we need to allow people to to share these these views. Uh, we need to, to to give them the opportunity to to challenge the status quo. Maybe because we still want to be sure that the the, that the status quo is right, or maybe we will change our mind. Um, but we, we need to, to challenge it. Um, that's the point of, of doing philosophy or doing research in general. So um, there have been uh, some episodes, some things that happened to me when I published a controversial paper. And then, and then I think it was some sort of like snowball effect. I think that the reactions to controversial claims has become more frequent and more aggressive um in the past few years and i started having the idea of the journal i think in 2013 14 so it has been like a long process and then um i asked peter singer if he wanted to be involved and then we have we asked jeff mcmahon if he wants to be involved as well uh and then we put together editorial boards and hopefully we will soon publish the first issue now because we started accepting submissions in april um but yeah that's that's what made me think that we we needed a journal like this do you have some examples of ideas that you you think are controversial that like but that would be valuable for i i think the idea that this would trigger and i think a lot of people would have a knee-jerk reaction against this just out of concern that that white supremacists or something are going to use this as a platform, which I don't, I think is a serious concern, but I, I guess I'm curious if you have examples of, of like what sort of things are you like good examples of, of the sorts of things that are valuable to the marketplace of ideas that might still get backlash. Yeah. Um, so I think I have, when, when I started thinking about it, um, climate change was still like a controversial topic and people didn't really believe much in climate change. And I was at the time, like I met people working on climate change and were like, oh, we're really worried. Like we get lots of death threats and stuff because there are climate change. Now that view um, has been um, taken over by the opposite view that, um, you, you know, climate change is, uh, it's, it's correct. And that's what's happening. Um, but I wonder how much time we lost um, because of you know this this attempt at shutting down people working on climate change, though that kind of um, attack was coming more from from the public than from academia. Now I think that there are other issues that um, um, cannot really be be discussed, and like anything um, questioning gender. Uh, the differences between sex and gender, if there is a difference between sex and gender, how many sexes are there, how many genders are there. Um, I think that you can't really question that. People got in a lot of trouble for questioning that. Um, for, for just like asking 
questions and i think these are legitimate questions because we really we really don't know um so i think it would be interesting of course some people said we already have an answer but some people saying that 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 we don't um but as i was saying even if you know if we agree and then uh, with the status quo it's good to have challenging views that in, in the worst case scenario they just prove that the initial view was actually correct but if you're never going to challenge that yeah that's not that's not happen and i think there is a lot of resistance also in discussing um genetics how genes genes affect um behaviors and personality traits and and um, and i find it like really puzzling i think one of the best books um i read this year was blueprint by uh, robert plumman and um i thought i thought it was really great but you know what he says there is quite controversial that you know your genes affect um everything in your life pretty much <laughs> uh, that's um that's something considered very controversial but um you know we need to discuss that we need to understand that we need to understand to which extent genes affect uh affect our lives and if they affect it in a way that we're not happy with um we we probably can modify them so now we live at the time where um with CRISPR and similar technologies, we can we can change our genes to a certain extent. In the future, will be even more the case. So instead of saying, "Well, well, no genes genes don't matter, and it's all about environment," maybe we you know we really need to understand better how 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 they work and what we can do about it. Uh, which doesn't mean to say, oh, well, no, the environment is completely useless, doesn't do any work in, in how we, we live, but it is a combination, most likely. We just don't know which percentage. Yeah, it does seem like it's difficult to have conversations about these sorts of things where even if the people who are, you know, adamantly defending these things are right, it doesn't seem like there's even much space to sort of ask questions or, or like it's, it is, it can, especially with the, the transgender thing, I think it, it can be very difficult to, or like it's, it's, that does seem like an area where it's very easy to say something clumsy and get canceled by woke Twitter or something. Yeah. 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 I call it, I call it the, uh, the BHD fallacy. Hmm. Basic human decency fallacy. Well, you just lack basic human decency if, you're, uh, if you if you aren't uh, agreeing with me. Yeah, but I do see like I, I guess I I do kind of see both sides of this, and I, I guess I'm curious then. Like to me, what these people are trying to do is not give legitimacy to ideas that are harmful. Um, or could be harmful or have been used in illegitimate and harmful ways in the past. Like with genetics, for instance, that's been used to try to prove, you know, sort of like some kind of like social hierarchy amongst humans between races based on genetics and, and just really gross ideas like that. So I think their concern is that when you, when you open it up for a discussion, if it, it could just give legitimacy to views that aren't actually very legitimate and make it look like this is a, a more real debate than it is 
and kind of give like ammunition to, to bad actors who are going to potentially just use that in a misleading way to, 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 to make their points look more legitimate. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's a serious concern, but um, I also think that it's, it's by debating ideas and by discussing them that we make sure that they, there is no, um, we don't, um, I mean, like if you, if you hide or if you don't discuss things, then you just create this kind of secrecy and like these groups that have these views um, become more and more extreme because they cannot discuss with other people. So they're just discussing with themselves. I think, you know, a lot of people have wrong views about genetics and, uh, and about genders, but since their views are just like a minority and they're terrified of discussing them, then um, they, they, they just become more extreme and they're probably like wrong. But if we allow people to discuss all ideas um, and to be ch to have these ideas challenged and then, you know, um, have a proper exchange of information, which is in part scientific, in part philosophical discussion, um, then I think we can reach the truth. Um, instead of having like these two extreme groups that can't talk to, to each other and, and, and just become more and more extreme in their own views. Um, I think like for, for, for all ideas in general, it's just like very good to, to challenge them from time to time. Like even the core beliefs I have that I really believe very strongly in, I, I just challenge myself sometimes like, oh, well now I've believed this for a long time. Is there any arguments that could affect this view and make me change my mind? Uh, I do that with myself or like if I read a paper that challenges my view and, and I think it's really enriching, even if I think that, oh my God, this is like such a stupid paper, uh, says this thing that absolutely I think it's wrong. Like, and then I start reflecting, like, yeah, well, you know, maybe the fact that I'm reacting like this means that they have a good point. And, and then if I'm, if I'm, a, if I'm really convinced about what I think, I should address that point and try to find a rebuttal. Um, and I think it's a good exercise to do. Just take your core views and once in a while and just try to find counter arguments. Like um, I do this sometimes like with abortion, with euthanasia, like for the things that like, I really care about. And I think really more like, okay, well, is there any argument against abortion that I haven't considered before? think if I can come up with some, like euthanasia, is there any argument I can come up with? And I think it's a good exercise we need to do with every topic, every topic, even the ones we really care a lot about and we have thought a lot about. Just, just doing that is, it gives you a bit of humility as well, but also um, makes you more open to other people, people's views um, because you challenge the views yourself or like you're open. And then you come up with better arguments. I thought it's, it's just like, it, it, there's nothing to lose and all to, to gain from discussing all the topics many times and just considering different, different views. Um, yeah. I, I think it's, uh, if a view is not really held by anyone, then maybe we don't need to, to talk about it. So for example, if, if we're talking about some weird religious cult you know, in, in, in Russia, there's, there's a religious cult where <clears throat> like there's 2000 people living on a commune and they all think that this one guy is Jesus. 
Um, is that worthy of publishing an article in the Journal of Controversial Ideas? Somebody from that? Probably not because no yeah. one's really taking that seriously. On the other hand, if the, if the uh, white supremacist view that Caitlin was talking about earlier, as dangerous as it might be, if it keeps gaining traction and if behind closed doors, people keep talking about it more and more, and this is sneaking its way through all the pubs and academic halls of America, and it just becomes this, this lion that's getting more and more ferocious, you know, maybe it is worthwhile to share a stage with that on its face repugnant view and try to combat it. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, I think there is, there is nothing better we can do if we really don't want people to become radicalized and to try to share. Uh, it's not like if all you're doing is to tell people, oh, you're not entitled to this idea, you're wrong, you're disgusting, you can't talk, um, and, and you're ridiculing them. That's not how you're going to make them change their mind. You need to teach them to think in the right way to see the weak points of their ideas. And, and that's, that's the learning process. Um, but it's not just by saying, oh, listen, like, I don't want to talk to you. you, you are disgusting, and I want to let you express your ideas because people are not gonna learn from that. Um, you end the debate and you know, they're, not, they're not gonna change your mind and it, you maybe lose the opportunity to think about some weaknesses in your argument or in your position. And Although, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was done. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, well, I must say that you, you, you demonstrated what a alien like philosopher you are when you said, um, when somebody writes something that offends you and you think that it's something is stupid on its face, you say, well, maybe that's just because I have not considered this more thoroughly enough. I don't know almost anyone else that does that, that has an emotional knee-jerk disgust reaction and thinks, wow, this means that this person has a real point. <laughs> but it is, it is an exercise you need, you need to do, I think, um, because otherwise you, you become um, dismissive of other people's opinions and, and, you, and your arguments become weaker. Like, in the end, what matters to me is not being right, it's to know the truth. Um, so, of course, it hurts a little when people find counter arguments to, you, to your argument. And sometimes like, I'm really irritated by things. It's not like I'm, I'm perfect there like, with no emotions. Like I get irritated a thousand times a day. Um, but then after that, I sit down and think, well, why is this person saying this thing? Is this what is the most charitable way to interpret what they're writing, uh, what they're saying? Um, is there any chance that you know this this argument uh, might apply? Um, and you know, um, it, it's it's tough. A lot of people like um, I think I read yesterday something like people read this. Was it like people read this like? Um, having arguments uh, that they, against them, like having people disagree with them. They really enjoy when there are arguments that reinforce their own views. And it's human, it's normal, everybody has that feeling. But I'm, I'm, I'm a philosopher, so I can't, I can't just <laughs> do that. It's like, yeah, well, that's great. You know, I will just follow people who agree with me. 
and not engage with people who disagree with me, then what, what am I doing? Um, I think I have a sort of professional obligation um, to, to keep my own views under like, review all the time. That's fair. Yeah. So I think the anonymous aspect of, of the journal is, is interesting. Like it's something I, again, can kind of see both sides of. So I, I'm curious, like when you're describing these kind of like these competing ideas, um, you know, that, that should be allowed to kind of compete and interact with each other. And um, I'm curious if you think then that if, if people can publish these anonymously, if, if the views should just stand by themselves or if there's anything being lost by the contextualization of, of who's publishing them. Right, like if uh, if someone if the person publishing was like a respected scientist in genetics or something versus just a, a white supremacist, I would I would view their their opinions differently. Even if it was the same argument, I would kind of take one with a much bigger grain of, of salt, kind of. So I guess I'm wondering what you think about that, or if in the peer review process, for instance, like beforehand, that's something you guys will consider as conflicts of interest and in the the people who are making the claims. You know, that's a, that's a good point. So, but I think for exactly the reason you were mentioning, like we are biased in taking some arguments as better because they come from a certain person and not from another one. Um, I think that's the reason why having anonymous publications actually might help um, because there are a lot of people who might have very interesting opinions, but they are no one. Uh, they're not famous. They're not, so what we're doing is we have a very tough peer review process. So we test the quality of the arguments. Um, so of course, like who reads needs to trust our, um, um, not our judgment, but we of course read the papers as well and, and select the ones to send out for peer review and then provide comments. But yeah, you know, we, we have experts reading them and giving feedback to the author. So we kind of have, our we we think the papers are good um irrespective of where they're coming from and then who reads needs to trust us that you know this paper even if you don't know who wrote it um it's a, it has been judged to be a good paper and it did peer review is is anonymous so the people reviewing the paper they don't know um who wrote the paper and i think that allows them to not being biased because if you know that oh this paper comes from my was written by my friend uh so yeah it's a good paper or oh this paper comes from was written by this person i don't like so it's probably a bad paper but um i think that the mechanism with peer review which is always anonymous uh, when properly done is that well you don't know who is the author and then you can focus on the idea or the paper itself rather than on the author and prevent that from me and i think it's good to extend this to extend this also to the reader um i'm surprised actually it wasn't done before i think you know people want to take credit for what they write um but um i think it's, it's also nice that people have to engage with the idea expressed in the papers in the DS expressed in the paper and not with, with the person because I've noticed a lot of the time people are just attacking each other they don't really even read carefully the paper of the person so like, oh I know you are and then they accuse each other of being some 
sort of like moral disgusting creature um and then nobody reads the paper nobody engages with the argument instead we think no what what is good is to is to engage in the argument i keep telling people instead of signing petition to have people fired demoted um expelled <laughs> from from academia just write a paper in which if you can you can um address these the arguments and, and and prove that they're wrong that that's that's your job uh, your job is not to get angry and try to get rid of the people you disagree with that's the opposite of your job indeed um so um, i really hope that then people will be able to at least with this journal to focus on the on the argument though we will publish some articles with the name of the author. I think we have accepted so far four or five papers and only a couple are anonymous. The other ones are with the real name of the authors. So. I was actually inspired by this journal to, uh, to outline one. So I, I'm not a professional philosopher, but I, <laughs> I've been trying my hand at writing a philosophy paper myself. Oh, so. that's good. Send it, send it along. And uh, yeah. And, it, I think that like if you read a lot of philosophy and indeed we have other people who were not professional philosophers who sent papers, um, independent researchers. Uh, so, you know, being affiliated to a university and it's not, um, it's not what makes a good paper. There are a lot of independent researchers out there who uh, write perfectly good papers. So please send it along. <laughs> sure. There's, there's, a, there's a quote from, but you're reminding me, there's a quote, I believe it's from G.K. Chesterton, which is, um, there's a thought that stops thought, and that's the only thought that must be stopped. Sorry, what is it again? There is a thought? There, there is a thought that stops thought, and that is the only thought that must be stopped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good quote. <laughs> that reminds me of what you're doing here. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I, I have my only lingering concern, I guess, is just like the difference. So like, in an academic level, I agree with you that that professors shouldn't be calling for other professors or philosophers to be, you know, canceled, and they should participate in the marketplace of ideas and maybe not consider the source. But for a lot of the general public, it, it seems like that's not practical. Um, like it isn't practical to sort of like get into the depths of, you know, that actors can, can kind of stir things up and make it very confusing, I think, for, for an outsider to, to really evaluate things. And so it, it seems like it's justified, at least in, in some cases, to consider a person's background um, when, when, you know, making, when, get in, like when they're making certain claims. Well, I don't know. I think that, you know, there are good arguments and bad arguments and it shouldn't matter. I know there is a lot of pressure like, oh, you know, we'll need to look at the person, their history, their context, and then, then we can evaluate like if this opinion comes from a certain person that this argument has more validity than it comes from another person. But I think that the argument should be able to to, to stand by itself. Um, I mean, people often say, oh, you know, men shouldn't talk about abortion because they can't have abortions. I mean, that's not true. I mean, a perfectly good argument in favor of against abortion can come from a man or from a woman. It, it is abstract thinking and 
it has nothing to do with the experience of the abortion itself. Of course, there may be some other reflections and ideas that come from that direct experience, but um, we, we should evaluate the argument regardless of, of the person having, having this idea. But I know that's a controversial idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think the reason why, uh, I, you know, I don't want to speak for Caitlin, but I'm thinking one of the reasons why she may have this uh, conundrum is because <clears throat> these arguments usually don't exist in a vacuum. Now, this journal may be a case where that's true, but in general, in the public, when people are making these arguments, it's because they have some kind of nefarious intention and they're dragging along a lot of people behind them that are going to make a lot of other assumptions that go along with the argument. So for example, so I, I, I wrote this down. So I'm sorry we keep coming back to this white supremacy thing, but this has just been a thing that's been ringing in America. For like every unmoderated forum that claims to be about like free expression and open ideas, like it is like, it ends up with white supremacy, which like you guys yeah, have yeah. a lot more like review power. So like you, you, I don't think you'll actually have this problem, but I think this is what a lot of people's minds like go to. Yeah. Like, right. So, so, so the, so, so the, the thing is, so, so, so in, in this example, there's uh, people who are trying to make philosophical arguments for an ethno state. Um, in, in which, you know, a, a certain race is the unquestioned majority in a certain country. Um, and while you can theorize about this and people can debate it on the internet forums, um, when, these, when, when these people who are leading this charge are asked, how do you actually accomplish this ethnostate, given how interconnected the world is, um, they've said, um, well, you, in, you financially incentivize minorities to leave the country. And then, you're, then you have to keep going and press further. Okay, well, what happens when the minorities don't want to accept these financial incentives? And then you get into, well, you force them to leave. You expel them. Expel them where to? One's not given the answer because they were born and raised in this country that you're trying to expel them from. Um, so it's... I guess what we're getting at is uh, the, these, these arguments can often have these small, like, hidden agendas beneath them that we want to be aware of avoiding. Yeah, but I think that, that again, like, you have to, to deal also with that. You can say, well, um, there might be arguments in favor or against that state. I don't know, like, so, not something like I really thought about but I mean, like I would I would be against it but you know let's assume that there are arguments in in favor of it um what are the the what are the reasons for it like do we think there are some groups that need to be protected or there uh, and that therefore therefore they want an ethno state I don't know like um or is it because there is a group who wants to enjoy so like what is the reason for it um, why do people want to achieve it? What, what are the pros and cons? Um, and then you get to the point where people say, I know, but like, you know, we want to, to, to use these solutions. Um, but, and, that's, and that's a different conversation. Like, well, you may have argument in favor of an ethno state, 
but you don't have arguments about how to bring one about. Um, so, um, you know, <laughs> um, you, you can have different, like a mix of views. Now, I'm really not sure because it's really not something I've thought about. As I tell you, like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not in favor of it in general, but, and I, but I haven't really heard the arguments in favor or against. It's not, it's not something I thought about. But you still need to engage with these people and say, like, well, look, um, I can see your point here. While why you would think that you know uh, um, it's good to have an ethnostate of some sort. For instance, you can imagine like some Aboriginal groups uh, they might want to have an ethnostate in which they don't have to interact um, with people that are not part of the group because they had bad interactions before historically. So maybe you have this small group in very remote area that don't want to interact. So how, like, is that, is that permissible? Why? Is it permissible in that case for some reasons, but it's not permissible in other cases for some reason. So when you make all this distinction and you actually like engage in good faith with all views, um you might end up with a mixed view like okay well you know maybe in some cases um that's a good idea in some other cases if these are the characteristics of the groups and these are the motivations that's not a good idea um and maybe in both cases it cannot really be implemented if it involves um you know <laughs> removing people from a country they want to live in um and you will still always have like people who are are completely unreasonable and they're violent and they're motivated by very very ill <laughs> motives and you know they don't really have a good moral compass but you 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 want really to challenge their ideas and not just let them discuss this idea by um, by themselves because eventually these people will, will vote as much as everyone else so if you let them there becoming more and more extreme instead of engaging and instead of mm, really trying to argue with them, it's you might end up um, with very disappointing results at the elections. So how do you engage? Well, it's difficult. It's not like you know, I hear a lot of things that, you know, like when people say, oh, no, I don't want to, I don't want to do the vaccine. Uh, I believe this is all, you know, like Bill Gates created coronavirus to like, I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> this conversation, like, look, all these people are dying. We've been in lockdown. People are losing jobs. Like we really need to move on. We really need to get vaccinated. Um, but uh, you know, I'm not going to achieve anything by saying, well, no, this, your refusal to take the vaccine based on this absolutely non-scientific issue um, is stupid. So I want to engage with it. So just like, don't get vaccinated, whatever, because I want them to be convinced that it's safe and that they should be vaccinated. So how am I going to achieve any result and convince them to get vaccinated by just saying, well, no, that's complete nonsense. Um, or by trying to guess, okay, why do you think that? So like, I'm gonna show you that that's not the case. Like, do you have other objections? And then, you know, guide them through the reasoning. I'm not saying that you have 100% success, 
but you have more chances at succeeding that just by saying, okay, well, I need to get the vaccine. And then they find, you know, ways to avoid the vaccine. I mean, you, you want people to, to be on board. I think democracy works better if people are on board and understand what kind of decisions they, they're involved in. And just, I think a lot of people really feel kind of marginated and alienated from, from the intellectual political debate. And, and I think that in a sense, we academics, you know, we have felt like, you know, it's also our job and journalists job to, to involve people um, and, and, and to try to, to really have conversation. Well, it sounds like um, cliche, but I don't think you can convince people of anything if you don't talk to them. Again, it's like having to, to deal with a child. I mean, children can understand things, but you need to explain them things. If you just say, no, don't do that because, you know, I'm the mother and I don't want you to do that. The child is going to do it as soon as you go in the other room. But if you explain the child what it's not in their interest and you repeat that and they can see from a certain perspective, then, you know, the child is going to learn. And we're all like that, even as adults, like, you know, we, we, we learn new things and we, retrain ourselves all the time and we do that in it's a reciprocal sort of activity so i learn from other people and i think i train other I train, I educate other people at the same time it's something we're all involved but i think a lot of people say oh well i am above this i know what it's right and i don't even bother to to talk with people that they don't understand this that's fair. Yeah. Okay, I have one more question on new controversial ideas and then we can move yeah. on. Sorry, I didn't mean to talk about this. this but it's, it's very controversial, so it is a good topic. It is, it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess the last question is kind of related is just like the, um, the nature of like, interactions between academia and sort of like the general public where um, it seems like since most people aren't able to to get a paper of you know of their opinions in a in a peer reviewed journal even as a non and as a journal that accepts non academics like most people just don't have the capacity or time to do that but um if it's but i guess the question is should they be able to respond at all to to people for, for instance if they if a philosopher publishes something that advocates for some policy that they think would be really harmful to them or like suggests that their you know lives aren't worth living or, or something like that then like should they be able to respond to the philosopher and it, it seems like if it's anonymous that sort of prevents that interaction from from happening yeah i think that um, i think that we should really encourage more public events in which like you know you have philosophers or academics or other, um, from other disciplines um, discussing ideas and then like having the public asking questions and um, and you know or presenting their views I've done a few of those but I think there should be many more it should be part it should be part of your um, profession or like of your job um, to engage in this in these debates I mean sometimes it's just like 
it's not pleasant like you have people shouting at you insulting you booing you whatever but if even you know one person in that group uh starts thinking you know, maybe uh maybe what she's saying is right maybe you know i can double check um then you have achieved something um but yeah i understand like it's it's difficult like you know we publish in academic journals and then academic journals are not really easy to read very often and i think that's another problem we should use less jargon and and make papers uh, more. oh yeah. yeah there's so much like the, both the, of us majored in philosophy and we still get bogged down by the jargon sometimes oh gosh goodness me yes <laughs> so. yeah no i mean i think that um it is it is a big problem like i think my papers like i, I always write my papers in a way that like they're very accessible and i think it's seen maybe by some other philosophers as a failure but i think you know i want my papers to to have <laughs> deep meaning but like simple to be phrased in a way that everybody can understand i don't need to put 200 mathematical formula and analysis in my papers to to explain the concept i think i think it's um it's a way of doing philosophy that alienates people um i think you know one of the greatest philosophers the greatest philosopher alive is, is peter singer and his his writing is is accessible but I, if you read papers from like 20 30 years ago they're way more accessible than papers written five years ago or something like that so i think that there has been like a selection towards papers that sound like extremely complex and then in reality it's not that the concept is is quite easy but it's just like expressed in a way with jargon and with wording that is is not yeah really <laughs> yeah like like david this is an example here so we had a, it was actually a great podcast and it but it took me so <laughs> long to dissect this paper on the trolley problem we had a philosopher who's done work on the trolley problem and just to read you a sentence from the paper he says a kills b just in case b's death is a consequence of a's feeing and feeing is an instance of positive agency like replacing like he's using greek symbols in place of an actual verb and i like these Greek symbols all over the place, <laughs> these little diagrams. Of, Whenever they start using symbols, like, you know. This doesn't, doesn't, like this is, this is not accessible to the general public. And something tells me that if you can't explain it in clear, simple language, you probably don't understand it as well as you think you do. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, I don't know, because like I don't write in that, that style. I don't, I don't think I actually ever tried because I really want things to be really clear to myself and to others. It's like, oh, it's like, oh, I need to explain this thing to this person who doesn't know anything about it. Let's assume that they don't know anything about it. And that's where I start. And um, I mean, I'm not definitely not as good as Peter. Like I'm a million <laughs> years away from, from, from him. But like, I think he's, He's a very good example, a philosopher who had so much influence and um, is, is so much loved, I mean, also hated, but, you know, uh, because he writes in a way that is clear. And when people can understand what, you, what you're writing, um, you know, they engage more and you can have more impact. Like Peter, I don't know how many animals he probably has saved uh, because 
of so many people reading his books and becoming vegetarians and vegans. And, uh, and, and then he's sort of talking about effective altruism and um, he has helped to save lots of human lives. And I think that doesn't happen when your writing style is so convoluted that after a page, people are like, mm, yeah, it's, uh, I'm gonna give up. Yeah. Um, so I think it is, you, in a sense, you have a duty to, to clarity as well, because you, you're not writing only for your peers. You're writing for you know intelligent people are interested in a topic and you want that to be accessible maybe this is another controversial idea i think <laughs> a lot of people um will disagree with that um that you know but it's our job to be obscure as <laughs> yeah i but I, I and i i don't know why it's it's nice where you know there is also like less risk of being misunderstood um you know, it's, and I don't know, I think there is like a huge difference there, but there is probably like a selection um, towards papers that are written in a certain way. I'm pretty sure that these people, if they could, um, they would write simpler papers, but maybe, you know, there is pressure into writing a certain style because then you're more likely to get published in certain journals. Um, so I think we should just stop rewarding that um, and yeah. start clear writing. This might be the most controversial idea I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, don't worry. I won't mention Judith Butler's name, but we definitely need more clarity among um, academics. Um, but while, since while we still have time, I did want to get into one of your other controversial ideas that you've written about. Um, and uh, I, I love this word, lookism. <laughs> I didn't make it. I didn't make it up. It exists already. Uh, but it wasn't a very famous word. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you talk about um, social biases against unattractive people and uh, try to suggest solutions of how to combat these this discriminations. And... Um, one of the things you say is a, is a more inclusive paradigm of beauty. Um, so what, could you say a little more about that? Yes, so um, very briefly, um, I think that there are two, um, two components, like there are two components of what makes us attracted to, to someone. So like we are attracted to certain features and to certain people in part um, because we are hardwired to have these preferences. These are like preferences that have evolved in our brain through selections and they're linked to reproductive um, fitness um, and so on and so forth. So we have some preferences really <clears throat> Um, deeply in our animal brain, like the preference for symmetry, uh, the preference for smooth skin, for youthfulness, and so on and so forth. I think those are, there is quite good evidence that they are um, really difficult to change as, as pref aesthetic preferences um, because we have evolved with them. And other preferences are um, influenced by societal standards of beauty. Um, so, for instance, um, the fact that um, Caucasian people are often portrayed in um, 
fashion um, magazines and movies um, that um, helps to spread the idea that there is something um, more beautiful about Caucasian features uh, which is not true um, actually because there are attractive people and unattractive people in all um, in all ethnic groups um, so and also like for instance some preferences depend on um, on yeah what the media portray um, so for instance like there is no particular reason why a very low uh, body weight um, in women should be considered attractive. There is no legitimate reason for that. But then like, especially in the 90s, there were these super thin models and they were everywhere. And like all the girls thought they had to, to look like that. Otherwise you were completely attractive. Now it's changing because there is um, different culture which I think is better of, you know, mm, appreciation for curvy bodies and different bodies but this i think shows how parts you know we, we can affect that so i think we need to change the paradigms of beauty to make them more inclusive in a way so like um we need to portray people of different ethnicities and people of different body weights people of different ages people of um different um appearance and and I think that that normalizes more uh, attractiveness, like different kinds of physical appearance. Um, because we are really influenced to believe that only what we see represented in certain media is attractive, even though we're not really hardwired for that. Um, so there is, there is room for changing our preferences and make them more inclusive. And when that happens, we're all happier uh, because most of us are not supermodels material. Um, but um, if that's the, you know, if only supermodels are portrayed and not normal people, you kind of forget that you know there are lots of people that look like you out there, and they're perfectly beautiful. They may not be supermodels, but they're perfectly attractive. So we become not satisfied with our appearance, we become less satisfied with the appearance of our partners, so on and so forth. When more normal people uh, are portrayed out there, that, that, that's a change of paradigm and, and that's more inclusive. At the same time, I think some preferences cannot really be changed because they are so hardwired that I think no matter how much exposure to these features, We'll probably never grow to like them. I could be wrong on this, but maybe it would take like thousands, millions of years to, um, to to develop, to change that preference. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but... So in terms of cosmetic surgery, though, then I, I think you've defended at least some cosmetic surgery. So do you only defend it for cases where where it's something it like symmetry where it would be very hard to get people on board with finding that attractive but then do you also support it for um people just wanting to conform to whatever kind of arbitrary beauty standards our society has picked like on one hand they experience discrimination but on the other hand it seems like it reinforces that notion that this is like the right standard for beauty or something yeah, there is there is definitely a conflict there. Um, I think that it also um, has to do with the kind of person. Like, 
some people uh, can can just go about their lives and feel self-confident and happy even if they don't really conform with this paradigm of beauty. But for some people who have other issues, um, that's not really possible. So that really affects their life more than you know than other subjects just because of how the brain is, like how they experience themselves. Um, so I think that when we say, oh, well, you know, you know, you can't use cosmetic surgery to change your feature just because you want to look more conventionally beautiful or, you know, you don't like this part of your body. We are um, interfering with some, this person's well-being. Um, on the other hand, I think we, you know, we can help, um, we can improve the situation by, um, portraying different kinds of appearance so that these people will think they have a defect because they don't look exactly like you know that person in in, in the magazine then can can find themselves themselves represented by that you know and see that oh look this person has the certain characteristics that they also have and they're considered very attractive so i'm probably very attractive too um but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't condemn any person to have to carry this burden on, on themselves if they don't feel like it. But yes, I really hope that we will get to the point where people will use cosmetic surgery, you know, because they have something that is like major, some like a symmetry or some kind of things that well, it's probably not gonna change through social intervention. And that for other for everyone else, it will be just possible to 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 have standards of beauty that are not as narrow as they used to be and still are in a way that they feel um, really uncomfortable about about their appearance. Um, so I think that it, we need both things. Um, we need, in some cases, cosmetic surgery for the people who need it and uh for the people who can't really handle their own physical appearance or for the people who have some features that you know um could be considered like deformities or you know um cannot really be, be changed easily by social intervention but we also need to do a lot to to really change the situation and if in one sense it's getting better <clears throat> With more inclusive standards of beauty and curvy women on the other hand it, it's getting worse because now you have all these filters photoshop and really unrealistic um, standards like keep saying like even the people portrayed in these pictures don't look like themselves because of so much photoshopping and production and filters that you look at yourself and say, oh, um, that, that seems to look vaguely like me, but obviously. And yeah. so we need, we need to do something about that as well, because, you, you know, you scroll Instagram and it seems like everybody is extremely beautiful and yeah. for sure it's not true. It's just all sorts of <laughs> technological uh, enhancements there. Yeah. 
Yeah, like I know people who like don't think that they should have pores. Like they think that's that's like a deformity because they see all these pictures of people who don't look, have pores, but it's just because of the smoothing filter. You yeah, know? Exactly. yeah. Like what's wrong with pores? Like if you don't have pores, you don't have real skin. You're not yeah. made. Happy. You need to have pores. Thank God, because you, <laughs> yeah. you need it. So you know you should be really suspicious when you see. I should. I think there should be a disclaimer on Instagram, like what you're seeing is fictional. Don't take that as a real picture and like a magazine because yeah. now I really got out of control. It used to be just like famous people had all this Photoshop, but now it's like everyone. Yeah. Um, and, um, and and that puts like everyone under so much pressure to to look attractive. So on one hand, yes, you have people. Um, um, celebrating uh, body diversity and curvy women and bodies, but on the other hand, you know, the, the skin and, <laughs> and, and everything else is fictional. So um, I, I think that, 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 I think that's bad, especially for young people. Um, I think my generation was kind of lucky to grow without Instagram and social media because, you know, our face wasn't really shown to the whole world at all moments. But now you kind of have to be on social media. Your face has to be out there and put so much pressure. Like when you're a teenager and you feel so insecure about your appearance, that must be like really, really tough. And so, yeah. And with all of this, it probably now doesn't stop in adolescence. Yeah, no, I think there is a lot of pressure on everyone now to 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 to, to look to look better, to you know, to compare yourself to to people on, on social media, and um, it's yeah, now it extends to 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 every age. I mean, like I'm I'm not immune from that, and I work on this stuff. I think about this stuff, but. Sometimes like, yeah, well, like, why is, why is everybody looking so smooth? And like, why is like, what's, <laughs> so <laughs> it's, yeah, even if you know that uh, at a rational level, it, at some subconscious level, you, you still can't process it. It's just, uh, it's just difficult to say, oh, well, mm, yeah, I know this is fictional, but at the same time, um, it's, it's hard to really, digested information and been constantly aware of it while you're looking at pictures so i think it um, it's hard to keep your self-esteem high if you're on social media um it, it shouldn't be like that and i think that you know if there were more realistic pictures that people say oh yeah well you know that's that's normal like that's like people i meet on the street uh you know most people on the street don't look like top models but they don't look unattractive either so well most of, of us are average and fine with that yeah, yeah. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> um so, so 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 to close out when is the first edition of the journal of controversial ideas supposed to be published well we were hoping january but i think it's gonna be postponed a bit more because we um as i was saying like our peer review process is quite tough um so we really want to select the best papers and uh, to to review them several times and have several reviewers and it's not very easy um to find enough reviewers um so maybe it will be february maybe it will be march it's hard to tell i mean um we have yeah as i said like 
four or five papers accepted, if I remember correctly, and a few more under review. I really hope we can publish our first issue as soon as possible because we're working very hard. And if I can say, like, if people want to check, we have a website, a website, journalcontroversialideas.org, and they can um, make a small donation. We have a PayPal button that they can use. And uh, if they want to submit papers, they're also very welcome. So we, um, sorry, I'm using just this second to promote the journal. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> That's great. All right, so you heard it here. It's journalofcontroversialideas.org. And we'll put a link uh, in the description. Too. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm really looking forward to reading this first Me too. One. Yeah, in spite of all my criticism, <laughs> I actually think it's a really good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that, that, that will be it for 2020. And I look forward to 2021 with more podcasts. And um, I'd love to have you on again, Professor Minerva, Francesca, sorry, Francesca, to uh, discuss some of your other specific papers in more detail. That's great. Thank you. Yes, I will. <laughs>